millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to the Mick Clifford Podcast with the Irish Examiner. Now, my guest today is an Irish journalist based in Russia who works for the English language online paper Russia Today. Brian MacDonald, who is a native of Carlo, now lives in the Russian city of Sochi and works throughout the country and abroad for Russia Today. Before leaving this country, he worked for a number of national newspapers, including the Irish Independent, the Daily Mail and, I note, Ireland on Sunday, a paper, Brian, that I worked for myself many, many moons ago. You're welcome to the podcast. Uh How you doing? Brian, topical issue, the issue that's all over global news this week, of course, is Afghanistan. And naturally, we're getting the Western perspective on it. And I'm very curious in the first instance of what exactly is the perspective from Russia on what's happening there. And I suppose just to remind listeners, Russia, of course, had its own experience in Afghanistan. It invaded the country, I think it was 1979. And a bit like the US today... It left with its tail between its legs, except perhaps not in as dramatic a fashion. So how have the recent developments been seen in Russia? Well, all I can say, and it's long before my time here, because I think listeners who didn't follow Afghanistan very closely will scarcely believe the fact that this war went on for 20 years, this uh, NATO-American war. I mean, there's probably people listening to this right now who weren't even born uh, when when the war started. I mean, it's got to be one of the longest wars involving a Western country ever, I'd imagine. I don't know, unless you count 17th, 16th century France and Britain and 30 years war and stuff like that. But um, from the Russian point of view, and you introduced at the start, Mick, and I I hate to be so exact in correcting you, but it was the Soviet Union that invaded Afghanistan. Very good point. Very good point. Of course, it was Soviet Union until 1989-1990, and this was at least 10 years before then, yeah? Yeah, um, it's very important to make that distinction now, because even though Russia is this modern Russia is the successor state of the Soviet Union when it comes to stuff like the UN Security Council and international agreements, the Soviet Union was a multinational state. I mean, for example, its longest serving leader, Joseph Stalin, was Georgian, not Russian. The second longest serving leader, Leonid Brezhnev, was Ukrainian. Uh, in fact, he was the one that ordered the troops into Afghanistan. But by the time he did that, he was barely able to remember his own name. So it's unsure whether, you know, he really knew what he was doing. Um, Brezhnev, as a survivor of the Second World War and the Bolshevik Revolution, had a very sort of anti-war stance, um, which is, I know, hard to believe because the Soviets were seen as aggressive. But he certainly didn't want, you know, the kind of mass deaths that had been seen in World War II that he'd endured in Ukraine as a, as a young man. You know, um, uh, Ukraine was terribly affected in World War II, as was Belarus. They were basically the killing grounds of that war, you know. And um, I suppose, like, by the time they went to war, older listeners would remember that in his last few years, Brezhnev was barely there. I mean, they were just sticking medals on him while he was half asleep at parades, you know. Uh, but in that phase of his life, he ordered uh, the uh, invasion of Afghanistan. The idea at the time was to... Uh, protect a socialist um, Soviet puppet government that were 
losing control of the situation in Afghanistan. It's a little bit different from the American perspective, because in the case of America's invasion, America had been attacked by uh, Osama bin Laden's al-Qaeda, which were being sheltered by the Afghanis, um, the Taliban regime at the time. So there's slightly different circumstances. Yeah. And then, of course, the Soviet Union bordered Afghanistan, Tajikistan, uh, Uzbekistan bordered that country and still do to this day, obviously. And Tajikistan to this day is still in a military alliance with Russia. So that brings us nicely to what we're going to talk about now to answer your question. Basically, the Russians always felt that the American-British NATO mission was doomed to failure because they obviously, as part of this, in their Soviet guise, had basically left with their tail between their legs in, you know, 89. And they had failed to, despite the fact that the Soviets, you know, bordered Afghanistan and had this huge military power, as you know, they were unable to pacify uh, 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 Afghanistan, although it's worth noting that the Americans armed the Mujahideen in the 80s under Brzezinski's, you know, plan. You might remember the Polish, uh, uh, I think it's Zinebeg Brzezinski, who was, uh, replaced Henry Kissinger as the national security advisor to Jimmy Carter after, after Nixon and Ford. Um, so basically, in this case, though, I suppose no outsiders were arming the Taliban in the same way that the Mujahideen were armed by the Americans at that time and by the Saudis, for that matter. But the Russians still felt that the Americans were doomed to failure. The, the Taliban and the way they, they are ruthless, they, they, they don't surrender no matter what. If 100 of theirs die and they only kill 10 of yours, they still consider that to be a victory. Um, and, you know, and their ruthless demeanor compared to America's you know, more liberal stance and you know, fear of loss of life of its own troops and stuff like that always meant the Americans were going to struggle there. Now, look, they lasted for 20 years. The Russians would argue that the whole thing was a bit of a Potemkin village, to use a Russian expression, because the Americans were boasting for 20 years about the democratic government and the pseudo-democracy they'd created in Afghanistan. And as soon as they left, it all fell apart in a few days. I mean, it was obviously just, uh, uh, you know, a very weak construct uh, at, at the very best. How the Russians feel now, Mick, is that, to be perfectly honest, they would have preferred if the Americans had stayed there, because for two reasons. First of all, it was distracting the American military. They were bogged down in Central Asia, which meant they had less resources for places like Syria and even Ukraine. Secondly, the Americans were successful somewhat in stemming the flow of opium from Afghanistan, heroin, uh, as we call it in the streets of Dublin or Ireland. And I don't know if you know this, but um, in the 90s, uh, Russia itself was overrun by heroin, as was a lot of Europe, including Ireland, the 80s and 90s, and most of it came from Afghanistan. And the Americans had been successful to an extent in, you know, curtailing the flow of heroin um, uh, while they were there. So that's another reason they would prefer they stay there. Another reason is because Afghanistan, in some ways, is a test of the growing friendship between Russia and China, because China is interested in exerting influence in Afghanistan, which in the Soviet era was a country Russia would have, well, Soviet Moscow, we'll say, would have, considered, would have considered to be in its own backyard. So there's possibility of, you know, fractures in the, in the, in the Russia-China friendship um, if, they, if, if, if the Russians feel that China's pushing too hard into Afghanistan. So there's another thing. And very lastly, I suppose, there's no doubt that the Russians have a lot of schadenfreude, as the Germans would say right now, about the fact that the Americans have been defeated so in, in such a humiliating manner. Because obviously that means that other countries who are in alliances with America or can, are, are under American patronage or client states of America like Ukraine or, for example, the Baltic countries, which are close to Russia or, or Taiwan, for that matter, in Asia, will obviously be feeling 
less convinced that America would really ride to the rescue in the event of war or, you know, after what's happened in Afghanistan, because it seems that the domestic American public have absolutely no appetite anymore for foreign interventions. I don't know if you disagree with that, Mick. You may follow America more closely than I would. No, I'd agree. I, I, w- I would definitely agree with that, Brian. I think that's the case. And as has been said this week, uh, the, the Afghanistan war was very unpopular domestically in America right through the 20-odd years they were there. But I'm wondering as well, is it being perceived in Russia as anything of a watershed in terms of shifting global powers and and where uh, the US is that vis-a-vis Russia and China? Is is, is it being viewed anything in, in that respect? Yeah, um, one one of uh, the writers who writes for me in, in my section, or T, where I'm head of the Russia Soviet, former Soviet Union desk, um, Fyodor Lukyanov, he's considered to be the leading Russian foreign policy expert. He advises Putin, or at least has done in the past personally, and also heads a think tank here called the Valdai Club, which was established by Putin in order to give foreign policy guidance to his government. And Fyodor wrote an op-ed there a couple of days ago for me, uh, which, uh, in which he said that this marks the moment when America is no longer the top dog in the world. This marks the moment when China becomes arguably the most important country in the world in terms of geopolitical, you know, because China, whereas America, as you just said, they don't have the appetite now for foreign intervention. China is only discovering its appetite for foreign intervention. It's all new to them. While the Americans have been doing this stuff for 100 years now, since the First World War, when they first fought in Europe, and they're sick of it all, the Chinese, you know, this is their moment. This is the moment when they are becoming a superpower, and they are interested in, they're interested in, you know, uh, spreading their wings, so to speak. And the Russians certainly feel that this marks a pivotal, that in, in 50 years' time, historians will say, this was a pivotal week, much like Suez, which very older listeners might remember when the British Empire in the 1950s kind of met its Waterloo and Suez. A lot of people would say that Suez was the moment when America became the top dog in the world, other than, say, the British and French empires. The Russians feel this is the moment when China becomes the top dog. Yes. Yeah, I can see that. And the other, of course, the other thing that China has going for it in that respect is that the leadership doesn't have to care what the domestic audience thinks because it's not effectively uh, democracy. And in that vein, Brian, where does Russia stand in that respect? I mean, is, for example, Russia's geopolitical interests, are they driven or reflected by sentiment at home as they would be, for example, in America? Or, similar to China, is it more, as is perceived in the West, a dictatorship type of situation? Very interesting question, Mick, and it gets to the nuances of a lot of misunderstanding about Russia. Russia is perceived at the moment in the West as a de facto dictatorship. But in reality, it's not a dictatorship. It's more of a sort of imperfect or hybrid or totalitarian democracy in the sense that there are elections here. Um, While certain candidates are kept off the ballot, the vote itself is real. And, and, you know, Putin, for that reason, and his government, unlike the Chinese, have to basically keep the general public happy in order to win those elections, because people can still vote for the Communist Party or the the right-wing LDPR party or the left-wing Adjust Russia party. So it's not like China where there are no elections whatsoever and no opposition whatsoever. I mean, Putin, Putin's Russia is more similar to Hungary or Poland in the sense that it's sort of a illiberal 
democracy where the government rules with consensus, but there's no real opposition. And one of the, one of the things there to arise is, of course, in a number of instances, it would certainly appear that one of the reasons there's no opposition is that they've been, uh, to use the phrase, bumped off. Yeah, but see, one, one section of the opposition has been bumped off. The pro-Western I mean, by the way, you're being bumped off murder. That's the yeah, wrong way sorry, to say I mean, flipping I mean, there. I shouldn't I mean, yeah, yeah. Or, I mean, or in prison, I mean, in fact. Like, um, well, Navalny's been Naval, in prison, yeah. but the rest of his people have, if you know what I mean. Well, some of them have been put on charges, but nothing to the extent he has. The pro-Western democracy or pro-Western opposition or liberal opposition, they are effectively persona non grata, but the communists are still around. There's a right-wing opposition party called the LDPR. There's a systemic left-wing party called Fair Russia or Adjust Russia, depending how you want to how you want to translate it. Um, so it's not true. There's no opposition. But what is true is that the the pro-Western opposition, which Putin's government view to be traitors. Now, that's not to say I agree with that, or that's not to say that that's true. But that's how they perceive it. Uh, they are basically have been pushed out of the scene. Yes, either they've gone into exile or they've been banned from running for election, or in Navalny's case, they've been jailed on what are clearly politically motivated charges, although they're not related to politics. Technically, they're related to a fraud case involving a French company called Yves Rocher, which you may see around Ireland sometimes as a cosmetics company. Um, But anyway, look, the point is that um, it is not a democracy in the way that Irish people understand democracy. But Putin himself still has to govern with consent. So to answer your original question, Putin, just like the Americans, cannot politically risk going on unpopular foreign policy adventures because it would result in a catastrophic loss of support for his party. And that's actually one of the reasons why he didn't go further into Ukraine, for example, back in 2014, because if Russian soldiers started coming home in body bags, that would have been a disaster for him. So he went for the easier, more bloodless option of taking Crimea, which... um, had a 95% ethnic Russian population, or 90% at least anyway. So it was very it was very unlikely that there would be any resistance. I mean, Russia going into Crimea was a bit like the Irish army going into Derry, if you know what I mean, in terms yeah. of the ethnic makeup. So while it was an illegal move under international law, domestically, there was no risk of body bags in the sense, like as much as if the Irish army went into Derry, the locals in Derry are not going to be upset about it, if you know what I mean. Yeah, and just extending the, the the domestic analogy there, Brian. Uh, you, you you tell me this is me just floating it, but for example, the the scenario you paint in terms of one section being pro West or whatever, and another being more left wing, and you've Putin and that would it be similar? For instance, I mean, you're probably aware at this stage the configuration here you've three roughly equal sized parties: Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael, Sinn Féin. Would it be equivalent, for example, if Fianna Fáil? or Fine Gael were in power, as they are, or just take one of them, and they managed to have all the shinners locked up or trumped up false charges, etc., etc., and that reduced the, the, the scope within the so-called democracy. I mean, that would appear to be limiting democracy in a big way. You've made a great argument that I've never thought of before, because the reason Putin has cracked down on these guys is because he thinks they're subversives who threaten the very you know security of the state. And that's how a lot of Finnegalers feel about Sinn Féin. They feel they're subversives who can't be trusted to run the guardsie, can't be trusted to run the legal system. So actually, it's very, very similar. Uh, perhaps if Leo Radkar thought he'd get away with it, he'd do what Putin has done. But, oh, um, that's a bit harsh, no, I, don't, I don't see that bad. <laughs> I'm only joking. I'm only yeah, joking. yeah, I know. I'm, I know. Sure I'm only framing it in a way, like as you say, in okay. those terms. But the point I'm making is that, and just 
following through on that analogy, if something of that nature were ever to happen in a, a democracy in this country, the um, the limiting of democracy as we know it would be huge. Yes, it would. But it's going on in the EU right now. I mean, look at look at Poland, look at Hungary. I mean, these Fair are point. fellow EU members along with Ireland. I mean, these are these are countries that, you know, where, OK, the opposition haven't been jailed as of yet in Hungary or Poland, but the opposition has banned off state television. The opposition is, you know, opposition media is pretty much non-existent. Uh, in Hungary, the main opposition news outlet, Index.hu, uh, was shut down uh, only last year, I think, or earlier this year. So um, so it's it, this kind of, you know, uh, unreal democracy or, you know, manufactured democracy, you don't need to go to Russia to find it. I mean, you can find it within the EU itself, in Poland and Hungary. You can find it in places like Montenegro, Turkey, it's all over Europe. It's just that because Russia is so big, it sometimes seems uniquely a Russian phenomenon. I mean, like, uh, it's not. And, you know, it could start spreading even more around the EU if, 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 if things, uh, if the economic situation gets worse. I mean, who's to say it won't start happening in somewhere like Italy, for example? Yeah, no, no, that is a fair point. To know what's really happening, subscribe to the Irish Examiner today at irishexaminer.com forward slash subscribe. Another topic which is viewed very differently in the West, is, of course, Belarus. And there's certainly the perception here that um, Lukashenko is very much sheltered Mm -hmm. by Moscow. What's your take on that? Well, now that we mention Belarus, Belarus is an outright dictatorship. There is no legal opposition in Belarus, and the opposition leaders are all in prison. Whereas the Navalny situation is one particular person in prison, and due to a case that's not directly linked to politics, although his prosecution is politically motivated. There's no doubt about that. In Belarus, people have been thrown into jail literally just for being the opposition. I mean, that's why they're in jail. I mean, Maria Kolesnikova, Viktor Babariko, uh, to name two of them. I'm sure Miss uh, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya would be in prison too, only for she managed to get out of the country the night of the election, actually, as I recall. And you have the man who's brought home in the Ryanair flight, uh, Roman uh, Protasevich. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Protasevich, who has now turned into a, a supporter of Lukashenko in another twist to the tale, of course, under duress, no doubt about it. But he's definitely doing a great performance of being pro-Lukashenko. So whatever they've threatened him with, you know, has definitely um, uh, either terrified him into doing it or, or maybe he was genuinely sort of losing his faith in the opposition before he was arrested. And it could be a combination of both. But Protasevich um, has been giving interviews where he's, fulsome in his praise for Lukashenko now and castigating his former opposition colleagues. But let's move on from that. And and um, about the question about Belarus, there is no love for Lukashenko, Alexander Lukashenko in Russia. He is someone that has played Russia and the West off each other for the last 25, 26 years uh, to get the best deal he could at the time. Don't forget that only one and a half years ago, not even one and a half years ago, 15 months ago, Mike Pompeo, the then American Secretary of State, was in Minsk with, uh, with uh, Lukashenko and they were signing contracts to sell petroleum to Belarus directly cutting out Russia from the market. Basically, America was undercutting Russia to you know, gain favor with, uh, with Lukashenko. So there's no great love for Lukashenko, but the reason Russia has been supporting his uh, his hold on power for the last year, even though they would prefer if there was another leader in Minsk, is because they don't want the state to collapse because it is their closest ally militarily, Belarus. They're, 
their their military allies in the same uh, CTSO agreement that Tajikistan I mentioned earlier is in, which is basically an Eastern version of NATO. So they don't want Belarus to collapse. And of course, they don't want Belarus to come under the West's orbit. That's what they don't want. So obviously, they're terrified of a Belarusian leader who, you know, could do what happened in Ukraine and pull Belarus out of its alliances with Russia and into, you know, Western partnership, although that's very unlikely in Belarus because most of the people don't want it at the moment anyway. Because don't forget, Belarus has considerably higher living standards than places like Ukraine as well. It's, it's um, you know, but anyway, so, so basically Russia's mission in Belarus is to keep the West out of Belarus. But it doesn't, but so what they want to do is they want to transition to a post-Lushenko, Lukashenko era on Moscow's terms. Take a while to do that. My, my enemy's enemy is my friend for the moment, I presume, is, is, is kind of sums it up in one way. Yeah. Tell me, Brian, I'm, I'm going to come to yourself in a minute, how you ended up in uh, Sochi and, and uh, working in Russia. But in terms of your employer, Russia, today, what is the status of the media there? For instance, is that, for example, as um, in terms of our understanding of freedom of the press, as free, for example, as my own employer, the Irish Examiner? <laughs> Now, the media here, this is going to be a very boring question for some of your listeners, so I'll try and make it short, a boring answer. The media here is incredibly stratified, okay? There is the state media, which is uh, the domestic state media, Russian language, which is essentially controlled by the government and where you will very rarely find any criticism of Putin on his policies, although you will find some, but very rarely. Um, There is Western-sponsored media, like Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, which is American government controlled, BBC Russia, which is paid for by the British government, um, the Foreign Office. And there is um, Deutsche Welle, which is German. Then there is some foreign funded Russian media, which has recently come under pressure due to a foreign agents legislation thing that you may have heard about. And then there's some independent Russian media, which is Russian owned, like Kommersant newspaper, a fantastic newspaper, by the way, excellent newspaper. Uh, TV Rain, which is an independent Russian owned television channel, which broadcasts mo- mainly online these days. And there is stuff like RBK, a business newspaper, and Novaya Gazeta, which is the paper of um, Anna Politovskaya, who is well known for having been murdered by Chechens in the, in the late 2000s. Uh, so the media here is very stratified. So to answer your question, Mick, if you were working for Commerçant, you could write as freely as you would for the examiner. But if you're appearing on the Russian version of RTE, which would be something like Vesti, Russia, Duasa Chitiri News, you probably wouldn't be able to speak as freely on that channel against the government as you would an RTE, for example, against the government. And what about Russia Today? Russia Today, you see, is a different kettle of fish because it's a foreign broadcaster. It doesn't broadcast in Russian. It broadcasts in English and Spanish and Arabic. So the level of state interference would be probably no more than the level of state interference in RTE, to be honest with you, because they just simply wouldn't care. I mean, the in my case, I've been running the Russia desk, which is obviously quite a sensitive one for the last year and a half with RT online. And I have never been asked under any circumstances to spike a story by anybody, even stories critical of the government or critical of Putin. I've never been told to print anything either in any way, shape or form. Um, now, that's probably not the same for, that's definitely not the same for domestic Russian media. So I don't want listeners to think that I'm whitewashing it in any sense. The foreign media would be different. Foreign centred media would be different to the domestic centred media. And if you mind me saying, Brian, your perspective would certainly, to, to my knowledge, in terms of a lot of journalists who operate from 
this part of the globe would be a bit different in that you seem to be, I suppose, in one sense, more understanding of the Russian position. Is that something that's evolved the longer you've been in Russia? And how did you get to Russia? Tell us the back story. I'll answer that second. I'll answer first my my evolution. Before I came here, I was extremely anti-Russian because I was I was completely coloured by the British and American media. I mean, I've been reading British newspapers since I was a teenager, um, particularly the Guardian and the Times. And, and I suppose I swallowed the Kool Aid from uh, drank the Kool Aid from reading that over the years. I was incredibly anti-Russian. I was I, that's why I didn't come here until I was about thirty for the first time because I had no interest in coming here whatsoever. For the first couple of years I was here, I was probably still very anti-Russian, even though I was here. Uh, and I evolved over time. But what's interesting about your question about me being different than some of the others who cover it here, I can tell you something about the British and American journalists here. The way they speak down the pub is very different from how they appear in the, on their own broadcast outlets or their own newspapers because they're playing a game. I mean, they have to give the editors back home what they want. And obviously the editors... A lot of the coverage of Russia in British and American media, I would say, is more news entertainment than, you know, sort of uh, actual news. Much like the way Boris Johnson covered the EU when he was the Brussels correspondent of The Telegraph. Covering Russia is a bit like a game to see how much how much of a caricature they can make of it, how much negative stuff they can put out, because that's what the editors back home want in much the same way that it's well chronicled now how Boris Johnson behaved when he was there for the Daily Telegraph. So that's a really good example for listeners to understand that. How I ended up myself here, very simple story. There was a little matter of an economic collapse in Ireland in 2008 and nine that some of our listeners may just have heard about. <laughs> and uh, that left me out of my ear, so to speak. So I, uh, I came over, I, I, first I went to Germany, to Berlin, and that didn't work out very well, the, uh, even though I speak German relatively well. Uh, it's not Germany to my mind is not a particularly great place for um, it's definitely not a place for Western journalists to go to or Irish journalists because they don't need us. Basically Germans are so good at English themselves. They don't really need us, you know? Uh, So I think uh, that was it. And I just drifted to Russia. I I can't even really explain how it happened. It was just like a slow drift. I just started coming here. I had Russian friends I made in Berlin. And I just slowly, slowly drifted here over a number of years. And now I've spent most of the last 11 years here. And you live in Sochi, Brian. Some people would um, perceive, certainly from here, that has been perhaps more out of the way than Moscow, for instance. Um, how did you end up there? Well, Sochi is effectively the second city of Russia nowadays because it's, uh, it's the, more than St. Petersburg because it's where all the government have their second homes. Um, in much the same way that we remember Donald Trump was practically living in Mar del Largo in Florida during his um, administration, in much the same way that wealthy Americans buy second homes in Florida, uh, wealthy Russians have second homes in Sochi. Now I only have one home in Sochi, so don't don't get so the wrong far. idea. <laughs> don't, don't get the wrong idea. But I mean, but what I'm saying is that um, the elite, a lot of the elite, would spend almost as much time in Sochi as they would in Moscow. Putin himself, his second residence is in Sochi, actually, and he's frequently down here. So from a work point of view, Sochi would be the second best place in the country to be in other than Moscow. The reason I don't live in Moscow is because I just can't handle the winters. That's the, I'm too soft. I'm a soft uh, southeastern Irish chap and I'm not able for the, for the, for the cold. You know, I just, that's the truth. 
And so the, the, the winter will be a lot worse in Moscow than, than where you are in Sochi. Oh, here's subtropical. I mean, here's here's like Ross Lair. I know it's it's um <laughs> here's here's like Barcelona or Nice or Dubrovnik to name a few cities along the same latitude. It's subtropical. Even in January, it'll still be 15 or 16 degrees every day. Um, and Moscow is like I don't know what it's like the top of Donegal. I mean, it's it's very 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 cold. I mean, it's uh it's and the winters. Are, it's not so much the cold. It's it's the lack of sunlight that kills me. Um. I was there um, in December 2018 uh, for the whole month and I couldn't understand why I felt kind of a little bit down all the time or not very happy. And I found out a few weeks later that there'd only been six minutes of sunlight during the whole month. So there you go. That says a lot, all right. And and, uh, the language, Brian, are you pretty fluent in Russian by now? I make no claims to be totally fluent. I think um, I'm reasonably good at it, but I'm certainly not fluent. I mean, I think when you come to a language in your 30s, it's very difficult to become totally fluent. I mean, unless you've got, unless you've got, you know, unless you don't work and you, you can afford to like, you know, learn it for four or five hours every day, which I was never in a position to do. Um, I'm reasonably good at it, but I would not claim fluency. No, I would not. That'd be very arrogant of me. And these things are always fluid. There's another word, um, but... Like, where you're at now, would you see your future as being over there? Well, given the state of the media industry in Ireland, which you're all too well aware of, uh, um, Mick, and I, I listened to one of your podcasts a few weeks ago. You had two young journalists on. That's including right. One from you. And what they said certainly didn't fill me with optimism about coming home. <laughs> you know, Ireland's a very, very expensive country, as you probably don't notice so much when you're living there how expensive it is. But I notice when I go to visit it how expensive it is. I mean, like one thing that always astounds me, for example, and and by the way, I understand that publicans pay a terrible amount of money in insurance in Ireland. I understand that wages are higher in Ireland. I understand that. But something that I can never get my head around is the fact that my local pub here in Sochi sells a pint of Guinness for the equivalent of four pounds, which I think at the moment in euros is about four third four forty, yes. Yeah. Uh about four forty, four fifty. But when I go to my local pub in Carlo, it's five fifty or you know, something like that, or even six in some places in Dublin. I've seen now I understand that the cost publicans have in Ireland are higher than in Russia. I understand that. But but it, it does say something about Ireland though that something that's made in Dublin can be so much cheaper three and a half thousand kilometers away if you know what I mean. Yeah you've, 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 you've just put an image in my head there used to be that old ad about Guinness are you going for a pint and they might have the uh, a bunch of rugby players heading up the pitch I can see them all now heading for the plane to Sochi are you going for a pint? <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, I just I suppose what I mean like it's a very expensive country. The media industry is in its in a terrible position. And as you know, uh, Mick, there's a move to working remotely at the moment, which a lot of media companies are doing. And like, to be honest, like if I were to say take a remote job in future, say with one of the IT companies or something, which is the fashion nowadays, and they were going to pay you, for example, 500 euro a week, no matter where you lived in the world. I mean, it'd be a lot. You'd have a, your 500 euro a week could go a lot further in a lot of other places in Ireland. The other thing then, just over there, the... Um... The economy, because the perception here, again, is that because of Putin, because of the nature of uh, government there and the various shackles on free market, that the economy in Russia is relatively depressed. Is that misperception? See, this is a chicken and egg thing because, like, everything's relative, like I said. I mean, like, when you, for example, you look at the GDP figures 
in Russia. You have to understand that everything is far, far cheaper here than it is in Ireland, and that has to be taken into account. And you have to understand as well that the black economy here is still huge. Um, Ireland, as you know, when we were younger men, uh, Mick, um, there was a lot of cash and handism in Ireland, and a lot of people might be claiming social welfare and working paint and houses or whatever on the side or whatever have you. That kind of thing doesn't really happen in Ireland anymore, not to the extent it used to anyway. In Russia, that kind of thing still goes on all the time. I mean, there's, there, by the way, many of the same foreigners who are castigating Russia all the time from Moscow are involved in the black economy here as well, because um, a lot of them might be giving English lessons and stuff like that and putting the money in their back pocket, if you know what I mean, and not declaring it for taxes, you know, uh, stuff like that. So, so, I mean, there's a huge black economy here. Um, there's a, a Swedish university recently estimated that around 50%, 48% of the economy is black in Russia. Uh, and that obviously means wow. that, you know, yeah, I mean, it's huge. I mean, which obviously means that the official financial statistics here can't be taken seriously at all. Uh, they just can't be taken seriously at all because, I mean, they, you know, if, 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 if that much of the economy is uncounted, I mean, wage statistics mean nothing here. I will give you an example. In the region where I live, which is known as the Krasnodar region, the average official monthly salary is only about 500 euros officially. But McDonald's down the road here, advertising starter jobs, that, that 500, that, that's 45,000 rubles, that 500 euros, okay? McDonald's down the road is offering starter jobs, washing dishes or whatever, or, you know, um, collecting stuff off the tables to teenagers for the same amount of money, which is the official average monthly salary. So Whoa. that obviously shows you that the official average monthly salary is a load of, you know, nonsense. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, why would, I'd see McDonald's, because they're a multinational chain, they would be one of the few companies here that would be actually, you know, completely white in terms of taxes and stuff, because they'd have to be, because they're an American company. So basically, the fact that McDonald's are paying the same amount of money as the average official wage to teenagers cleaning the tables shows you that the official average wage statistics are complete nonsense, basically, obviously, for that reason. And the reason for that is most people get, still get paid in envelopes. So to answer your question about the economy, the economy is not great compared to Ireland. But if you include the black economy and if you're realistic, I would say the standard of living here is much the same as mid-ranking EU countries like the Czech Republic or Portugal or, for example, Poland or those kind of places. So not as high as Ireland, but in, on, in terms of what you would see in Prague if you went there, for example, or Lisbon, you know. That's, yeah, it's very interesting. Finally, Brian, um, just to take you up there, you mentioned earlier about the um, the nature of reporting there from American and British outlets and presumably other Westerners, you seem, and correct me if I'm wrong, to be suggesting that they present a picture of Russia to satisfy their editors and viewers rather than the real picture. Yeah. That's a bit of difficulty with that. <laughs> I'm not that saying way. anything radical. I'm not saying anything radical. And I think if they were, if you, if, you, if you came over here and met one of them in a bar in Moscow and asked them to their face, I think they'd admit it because they've certainly admitted it to me over the years. Many of them. If that is the case, then our Western perceptions in general, if one goes along with that, are completely out of sync with the reality of our Russia. Yes, they are. Totally, they are. I mean, like, that is the reality that, you know, they, they bring on the people who are discussing Russia in the media in Ireland and in the UK 
uh, are typically people who've not been here for a long time or people that just come here the odd time and they are playing a game they come from think tanks which are generally sponsored by military contractors and you know nato and stuff like that and the british government and they've got an agenda to push as well their agenda obviously is to maintain russia as an enemy because it helps with you know military spending justify military spending in the uk for example um it's everyone's playing a game and the russians themselves are playing a game as well i can tell you i mean the russian think tank people are making the west out to be much more of a threat than it really is because they obviously want to encourage more military spending in russia i mean like i know in my heart and soul that nato will never attack russia because there's no way you could get 29 or 30 countries to unanimously agree to attack russia there's no way you're going to get hungary and germany to even if america wanted to attack russia there's no way germany and hungary and spain are going to vote for it you know what, what would they want to attack russia for so i know in my heart and soul that nato is not a threat to russia but watch russian television that's not what they're saying you know and uh, i also know in my heart and soul that russia is not a threat to the west i mean because russia politically it would be impossible for russia to attack a western country because it, it, it would, so many soldiers would be killed for nothing. There's no appetite for that here. And also, it would be suicidal from Russia's point of view because the West would sanction it to death and the economy would collapse. And the same is in reverse. I know in my heart and soul that Russia will never attack NATO because it would be suicidal for Russia economically. The country, I don't know what percentage of its exports are reliant on the EU market, particularly Germany. Uh, it would be a military catastrophe because Russia would only 100 and 40 million people simply could not attack a Western bloc with over, you know, a billion people, basically, if you include America, EU. So I know that in my heart. And so, so do the very same people that go on BBC and that threat, talking about a Russian threat. Russia is no threat to the United Kingdom. Russia is no threat to Ireland. There is just a lot of people making a lot of money out of scaring people. Okay. Uh, and last thing I just want to ask you, Brian, um, as I'm sure you're aware, um, particularly being from Carlo, that uh, London and New York take place in the All-Ireland Championship. When are you going to get a team from Sochi to do its bit? There's a Gaelic football team in Moscow called the Moscow Shamrocks, um, which is, uh, uh, you know, very interesting, run by a guy called Alan Moore, who I believe is from County Louds. Uh, and I think they were taking, just before the COVID, sorry, I called it the COVID, sorry, there was a, they took part in a tournament in Brussels, I think. Um, I think I saw pictures of it um, a couple of years ago. But certainly it's not a, as Michal Merhertik might have said uh, when he was talking about um, um, Sean Ogo Halpin, yeah. not a noted GA Stronghold, yeah. <laughs> very uh, good. I, 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 a, bit, a bit like parts of County Carlo, unfortunately. <laughs> um, <laughs> very good. Brian McDonald, listen, thanks very much for talking to us today. Uh, very enlightening and very interesting perspective on Russia. God bless. Thank you. I'd also like to thank our producer, JJ Vernon. Thank you for listening, folks. You can get us on all the usual platforms and we'll see you again soon. Stay safe.